The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have fully been known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we've been in uh, the book of Corinthians over eight months now. If you're just joining us, we welcome you. We study verse by verse through books of the Bible. And this uh, book, I hope, has kind of dropped a nuclear bomb on your expectations of church. Many of us think church is where the holy people go. Church is where the people that have it all together go. Church is where all the buttoned up folks get together and talk about all the folks who don't have it together. Well, this letter to this church in Corinth hopefully has blown up that false ideal that's in your mind. And and I hope that you're seeing reality for what it is that every single person on the face of the planet is a sinner, is bent, is selfish, is broken. And when you put a bunch of them together, it's not always going to go well, right? It's not always going to go well. So we've been calling this following Jesus in a jacked up church. Hopefully this is equipping you so that you can follow Jesus in our jacked up church. That's our goal, right? Because you are in a jacked up missional community. You are in a jacked up gathering right now. You're led by a jacked up pastor. I'm sorry. Uh, That's just, and you know what? You're a jacked up follower. Let's just go there too, right? So we're all jacked up together, right? So we've been studying this for eight months and now it's interesting. We get to this chapter 13 and chapter 13, though I've put more weight on it. I've I've spent four weeks in it. It's actually not the crux of the whole book. I think chapter 15 is the crux that we're going to get to in a few weeks. But chapter 13 is very important. One of the most famous pieces of literature ever written, right? Secular, non-secular. Um, this Corinthians chapter on love, right? So we've been in love now. We've been talking about love now for four weeks. Uh, in the last 50 years, I, I, a little quick Google search. In the last 50 years, there's been at least 10 popular songs with the title, Love Makes the World Go Round. Now that's from artists such as Dion Jackson to Madonna to, unfortunately, Ashley Simpson. Now, what's interesting to me is that this concept that's love that makes the world go around, this concept that it's love that it makes our lives worth living, that makes our world a better place to live, is really just an echo of what the Bible already teaches. See, in the Christian scriptures, we read that first God is love, right? Theologian Peter Kreeft says it this way, the Father loves the Son, And the Son loves the Father, and the Spirit is the love proceeding from both from all eternity. 
If that were not so, then God would somehow need us. He would be incomplete without us, without someone to love. Then his creating us would not be wholly unselfish, but it would be selfish from his own need. So, in the Christian scriptures, the God of love creates a world where his unselfish, one-way love can be put on display and he creates people to receive his one-way love. And then in the ultimate showcase of love, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, leaves heaven and personifies that love in human flesh. Colossians 1 says that all things were made through Jesus and all things were made for Jesus And Jesus is what's holding all things together right now as we speak. So these pop songs are getting at something the Bible affirms is true. Love really is what makes the world go round. But love isn't the only thing that's vying for the gravity of our attention. Love isn't the only thing that's vying for the center of our world. There are many different worldviews that place something other than love at the center of the world. Power, talent, wealth, fame, all these compete with love to be the center of our world, in our culture specifically. There have been many men and women who think love is secondary to these other pursuits. Life is actually all about the acquisition of power or wealth or fame or talent. Now this desire can go really evil in its exaggerated form and take the form of a Hitler, right? But most of the time, it's a lot more subtle. What happens to a person when love becomes a secondary pursuit? Let's say talent. What's important in life is that each person become the best they can be. What's important, this is another world, what's important is that each person take their talents, Christianized version, the talents that were given to them by God, and then they maximize them by reaching their fullest potential. I think this is a very common worldview, even among Christians. Life is about being great. It's about developing our gifts and talents and showcasing them. And then maybe after the touchdown, right, I'll run, I'll run and I'll point up to the sky. Right? Or maybe during the after game interview, I'll give a shout out to God for my abilities. Or maybe when I get the award, I'll say something like Matthew McConaughey says, says God, he's really my example and my hero. And I kind of look up to him and want to be like him. Okay. Maybe, maybe is that, that's what it's all about. But what happens in that worldview? What happens when your talent fades? Because it happens, right? It's going to happen. What happens when you get hurt or you get too old and you're forced to retire? Think about this. I was thinking about this this week. Michael Phelps, right? He does more than eat Subway, if you didn't know that. Uh, In 2008, at the age of 23, he became the most decorated Olympian of all times. He earned eight gold Olympic medals in a single Olympics. That's great. That's phenomenal, right? We all cheered and we loved it. Here's what's kind of sobering. Michael Phelps reached the pinnacle of his athletic potential at the age of 23. Now what? 
right? Most 23-year-old kids are just figuring out their life. Maybe they're graduating college. Maybe they're getting some entry-level job. They had this, you know, this uh, idea that they were going to get out of college, get this six-figure job, and they're going to drive the BMW. And, you know, now they're realizing, oh, man, I have a college education and I'm still, um, you know, and and I'm working, you know, either a time-based job or at Starbucks or something. Oh, and they're kind of getting back down to reality and they're starting their climb up the corporate ladder, building their life. And Michael Phelps, at the age of 23, peaks. Peaks. Now, and then, four years later, he goes to the Olympics, he wins a few more, but everybody's like, oh, he's, yeah, he won some gold medals, but, you know, it's only four this time, right? And, that, and then he retires at the age of 27. What do you do? You hang, you know, whatever he hangs up, I guess a Speedo. He hangs a Speedo up. At age 27, and he, what? Now it's just him and Jared on Subway commercials, right? Like, what do you do? Now, it's just recently, came, you know, about a few months ago, he came out of retirement like they all do, like, my, like Michael Jordan, like everybody who, who they were great and then their talent fades and they say, no, what, I can maybe give it a go one more time and he might be great again, but he'll never reach up. He'll never get back to his 23-year-old self. What does that do to a person? How does that affect a person if their life is built on their talent? Can I ask you a question? What do you think here? Does power, talent, or wealth have any correlation, any direct correlation to long-term happiness? Does power, talent, wealth, fame have any correlation to long-term happiness? See, I think shows like Mad Men, House of Cards, Breaking Bad. I think these shows on on our television are, are, are trying to communicate something to us. And maybe they don't even know it. But they're really, there's a deeply Christian worldview that's coming, that it's kind of coming from. Not saying those shows are Christian. But they're, com- they're projecting something that's true that the Bible teaches us. And that's the end of power and talent and wealth will not satisfy. It doesn't. It's, we can feed it and feed it and feed it and feed it, but it's a monster that desires more and more and more. We see this week horrible news of actor Robin Williams who suffers from depression. And we, we look at his life. And I know so many people, they look at the, the celebrities and we look and we go, he was hilarious. He was so talented. He had so many people who could love him. How could this happen? Now, let me contrast that. Let me contrast that desire for power and wealth and status. Let me contrast that with love. Do you think love has a direct correlation with long-term happiness? See, what we're going to learn today is that the marker of maturity for a Christian is that we begin to see the supremacy of love and its development in our lives. I mean, mean, I want you to hear me. The marker of maturity is a Christian begins to see over and against power, fame, status, anything else, the supremacy of love in our lives and its development. See, when a child is born, they are born with a hunger for love. If you're a parent, you know that. Most of the time, parents do their best to love little Johnny, right? Love little Johnny. I love him, right? I'm going to try to give him what he needs. 
But a marker, parents, you can tell me if this is true, a marker of that child's immaturity is that they're never satisfied with just love. That child does not walk around and go, my dad loves me. So I just feel completely whole, right? They, they walk, you, you see this when you walk through the aisles at Walmart, right? My kid's just so satisfied in my love, right? And it's more like, no, this, I want that, I want this, I want that, I need that. No, everybody else has got that, right? That's usually what it's like. Shopping is torturesome with a child. They are convinced. Tell me if this is true. A child, an immature child, is convinced that more toys, more candy, more attention is the key to their happiness. Am I, am I right? Right? And I found it's the exact opposite. I could give my kid a stick and put him in the backyard and say, go play, and I don't want to see you for a half hour. And I'm looking out there and the stick becomes a gun. Then it becomes a flag. Then it becomes something to pull your sister up on top of the shed with. This one stick. And when I force him to go down to the toy room where there's this overabundance of toys, we hate this. There's nothing to do. Right? All the toys down there, not happy. Give him a stick outside. He's happy. Right? Sometimes more options doesn't mean more happiness. Paul says, and Paul's saying here, That's immaturity. This is being a child and thinking like a child. Parents that don't see this as immaturity. Now listen, parents, because we can buy into this worldview. We can buy into this worldview, which when our kids, you know, our kids think that more clothes and more things are, is more love, is more satisfaction. We can buy into this. Parents that don't see this as immaturity think that what their kids need is better clothes. More athletic lessons or more friends, which just reinforces the idea that to the child that happiness is found on the other side of power, talent, or wealth. I'll be happy when I get blank. Now listen, my parents bought into this, okay? Specifically my mom when I was a child. I was, I don't know, probably about three foot tall. I have no idea, but I was in third grade, okay? And... When I was in third grade, the thing to play back then, I'd never heard of the sport that I would come to love, right? Wrestling. I'd never heard of this yet other than WWF stuff. Uh, and I, so I was in bitty basketball, okay? Bitty basketball out in Parkview. I'm about three foot tall. I remember very clearly having to granny to get it from the free throw to the rim. Um, I did not have skills, okay? This would have been a great opportunity for my mom to sit me down and say, John, Justin, come here, let me talk. Uh, I'm four foot 11. Your dad's five foot nine, five foot 10. This basketball thing is probably not going to work out for you. So we all have weaknesses. <laughs> we all have things that we're not good at. This is yours. Okay. Let's just, let's just talk about that. Mom didn't have that conversation. Instead, I convinced mom <laughs> what I needed was air Jordans. I needed, there were 23s. I needed Air Jordans, my third grade self. If I had these, somehow this, I would know more of this. I'd be just sinking them, right? I needed the, and I convinced her, hundred and something dollars. My parents have four kids. My dad's working long hours. My dad, who knows how many hours he had to work for that back then. And for some reason, my mom convinced, bought into that worldview, my kid will be happy when he wears the Air Jordans, right? And all that did, when those Air Jordans worn out, now I need the Bo Jacksons, mom. 
I need the boat, cross trainers. I'm not into basketball anymore. I need the cross. And it just, right, just keeps on going on, 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 right? That's an opportunity. See, when our kids, listen, listen, parents, when our kids experience that hunger, that's a, that's an opportunity to be a good parent. See, Christians need to apply the gospel to their parenting. What does that mean? We need to see this immaturity in our kids as a great opportunity for God to soften them, to convert them. Second Corinthians three, four says that unbelievers, and that's including our kids, their eyes are veiled to the glory of God. They can't see how good and glorious God is. They can't see how precious and worthwhile Jesus Christ is. And what happens is, if you can't see the glory of something that's imminently and exceedingly glorious, you're going to replace that glory with something else. Usually the glory of myself. The glory of fame, power, wealth, shoes, athletic ability, talent. See, those things are nice and shiny. So when our kids experience the hunger, that hunger that can't be satisfied, parents, do we know this? The jeans aren't going to make you happy. The doll's not going to make you happy, right? The next thing's not going to make you happy. We prove it every Christmas, right? When parents hear that angst in their child, everybody has it, mom. Let me tell you about everybody don't have, right? I need it. I want it. Let me tell you about what you need. When we hear that angst in our child, that's a hunger. And a good gospel-centered parent will do what gospel-centered parents do. Quote C.S. Lewis to your child. Here we go. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Paul is showing us that right here in 1 Corinthians 13. You have a hunger. You have an ache. You have an itch. You have a memory trace that will only be completely satisfied in heaven, the world of love. It's the only thing that will satisfy. Son, man, I wish we, I wish we had some parents in here that could get this. I wish we all could get this. Son, being an all-star pitcher won't satisfy that longing. The answer to your hunger isn't more pitching lessons or better gear. Only the love of God can satisfy that hunger. And this is what God does to us and does in us at our conversion. When we accept Christ, God unveils our eyes. He says a veil is removed and we get a glimpse of the glory of God in Jesus. We get a get glimpse of the worth and the supremacy of Jesus. Maybe it's just a glimpse. Might just be a, a, a sparkle in the, in the sky, right? But we get this glimpse that G, there's something about Jesus that's more satisfying than money and fame and power and wealth and prestige and my talent on display. There's something better and more permanent about Jesus. But what can happen for parents... Parents, tell me if this isn't the truth. Your kid, you know, maybe is converted or maybe says the quote unquote sinner's prayer or goes to camp and comes back loving Jesus. And then parents can go, glad that's taken care of. Now let's get little Johnny to gymnastics and little Johnny to baseball practice and little Johnny or whoever to choir practice. Right? Let's get on with making something into this child into something. Let's go on developing this child's talent. 
And what happens then is we kind of check the box on conversion, is what we think. Check, oh, kids converted, my job's done there. Now we can move on to other things. And parents spend 10 times more time teaching their children to keep the eye on the ball rather than their eye on Christ. Dad, throwing the ball to Johnny's great. Throwing the little throwing the football is great. Wrestling with your kids, great. Do it. How often are you teaching them to keep their eyes on Christ? How often are you breaking out the word of God? How often are you doing family devotions? How often are you coming around the dinner table and singing hymns to God or singing and giving thanks to God? How often are you teaching your kids the scriptures? Are you spending more time teaching them to keep their eye on the ball rather than their eye on Christ? And now, in steps the Apostle Paul. And Paul basically says this. Yep. I used to think like that too. I used to speak like that too. I used to reason things out like that too. But then I grew up, Paul says, and I put away childish things. And maturity is not marked by being able to hit a 90 mile an hour fastball. Maturity is not marked by being able to memorize whatever mathematical table you want to memorize, maturity is marked by love. Not talent, not power, and not wealth. This whole chapter, if I had to summarize it, it's about growing up into love. Becoming more and more like Jesus and letting a love for God and a love for others have more influence in our lives than power, talent, or wealth. But parents, it's said that most of what our kids learn from us is caught, not taught. Can I ask you, do you find yourself more preoccupied with the acquisition of power? It means moving up the corporate ladder, gaining followers, being more influential, Do you find yourself more preoccupied with the development of your talent or the amassing of wealth? Now, listen, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying all those things are evil in themselves. I'm saying they're evil when they're primary. They're evil when they're center. They're evil when they're above love, when they're above the pursuit of love. See, a marker of maturity is we see the supremacy of love and its development in our life. A sign of, just let this sit here. A sign of immaturity is that you'd rather be talented than loving. See, when I was begging for those shoes, that was a gospel opportunity for my parents. They didn't understand the gospel back then, but that was a gospel opportunity. See, I would rather be talented than loving. I said some foolish things. Back then, I still remember it. I'm tempted to say it, but I don't know if I should. Right? I would rather be talented than loving. That's an opportunity for the gospel. It's an opportunity to speak to your kid about a desire in you that wants to be better than other people, but that doesn't want to love people or see God as loving and see Jesus Christ and his work on your life as supreme. You'd rather be rich than loving. If, I had to take, if you had to take a test right now, what would you check? Would you rather be rich or loving? 
Now, I know you want C, both, right? I, I get that. I, I get that. You'd rather have people respect you or revere you than actually know you and love you. You'd rather be up on a pedestal and people kind of look at you like a celebrity or look at you like, wow, I want to be like that guy someday. Paul says to all of us like that, it's time to grow up. Paul was actually a great example of this himself. Listen to Paul's description of himself from Philippians 3. If anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, confidence in the flesh, what does that mean? Pride and possessions, pride in your talent, pride in who you are as a person, your works that have got you there. If anyone has pride in the confidence of the flesh, or they're, they're confident in their degrees, or they're confident in whatever it is, this is, this is what Paul says. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, God's chosen people, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee. That means he held the law in high regard. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He saw uh, Christianity as this little sect, as a cult, and he was going to squish it out. As to righteousness under the law. So as a moralist, how, how well did he follow the rules? Blameless. But whatever gain. So Paul's saying right here, I was straight laced. I was buttoned up. I was a moralist. On the outside, I looked like I had everything going on. When it came to confidence in the flesh, I had all the reason in the world to walk with a swagger. And I did walk with a swagger. But what does he say? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. When Paul says that he gave up childish ways, he's referring to this. He gave up his confidence in the flesh. He gave up his ability and his measuring himself with other people according to his good works. Paul says, the ache for power, talent, wealth. It's real, but it's child's play. Want to know why? Listen, all of those things, we kind of, we, we, we described it with Phelps. All those things have an expiration date. Think of Michael Phelps. His maturity rate was at the age of 23. And then from that point on until his death, his talent will be on a downward slide until it reaches zero. So if it was on a line graph, here's the maturity rate. Here we go. Time, x-axis, right? Talent, y-axis. Michael Phelps, age of 23, uh-oh, uh-oh, until death, gone, zero, right? That's what that graph would look like, right? Up, down. Now, I think the same goes for money, power, and fame. You start out nothing, more than likely. You can gain that. You can get some power. You can get some wealth. But eventually, you're going to start losing some of that. Or at, on death, zeroed out. It's all gone. 
right? That's the investment we're making when we're putting investment in power, talent, wealth, or fame. It's going up. It's going to come down. It's going to hit zero at death. But here, Paul shows us a different curve. One that, if you like graphs, always trends upward. And then the greatest thing about it, trends upward. And then upon death, it actually actualizes. What do I mean? Look at verse 10. This is where I'm going to get. Sorry, it's taking me so long to get back to the text. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 10. But when the perfect comes, I'm going to start with eight. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. So all of our gifts will pass away. They will cease. As for knowledge, even knowledge will pass away. For right now, we know in part and we prophesy in part. But look here. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, that word right there, perfect. Scholars translate that. That's the Greek word, teleos, teleos. That is a form of the Greek word, telos. It's where we get words like telescope from. Now, telos is the end for which a thing is created. Okay, it's, it's purpose, it's, it's goal, it's, it's actualization point. That's what telos means, okay? Like in a telescope, you get to see something that's all, way down the road. You get to see the goal. You get to see the end, right? That's what the telescope does. Now, parents. Actually, let me get a little bit more specific. Parents of adult children. Wouldn't it have been nice to have some kind of magical telescope when you were young and raising your kids. A telescope that would allow you to see their end, to look down and see their purpose and then raise them according to that telos. Wouldn't it have been nice? Look down there and go, nope, no baseball lessons. He's going to be a dancer. That'll save me some cash. Right? Anytime you doubt a decision, you just kind of peek down this magical telescope. Let's see how this decision to move my family will will affect my children. Peep, right? Oh, I see a psychiatrist. Let's not do that, right? Paul is showing us here the telos, the goal for everything. Paul is looking down the telescope, and he's seeing the end for which God created the world. And he says this, when the telos comes, when the perfect comes, when Jesus Christ arrives, the world will no longer be like it is now. This world will be, as this chapter has been showing us, a perfect world of love. Or look at verse 12. For we now, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Okay, I said Corinthians was... The city of Corinth was known for its fabrication of mirrors. Mirrors back then were just basically a polished piece of metal. Anytime you saw a reflection, it wasn't near as clear as we saw it today. It was very dim. It was very dark reflection. But then look. Now I know in part. I'm sorry. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Face. 
Paul is saying. The telos. The end for which you were created. The actualization point when we'll finally be who we're supposed to be is the day, according to verse 12, when the perfect, the telos comes and we see God's face. Now listen, this is Christian brother or sister. This is the end for which we were created. This is where our world, right, and all of those who love God are headed We live, we will live in a world of love and we will be lovers and we will get a sight right here. What theologians call the beatific vision. What is the beatific vision? It's the unveiled face of God throughout the Bible. People, you see this ache all through the Bible. You see this ache. People want to see God, but then they, anytime God shows up, they fall to their, their face. They get afraid. They can't see his face. Scripture says that no man can see the face of God and live. Moses, as he's on top of the mountain getting the uh, Ten Commandments, he says, I want to see your face. I want to see your glory. And God says, no, you can't see it. You'll die if you see it. I'll show you my backside. (laughs) I wanted to say a booty joke there, but I guess I'll just keep that one to myself and giggle at myself. Scripture says no one can see the face of God and live. Why? It's like going to the sun. The glory of the sun is greater than the glory of our flesh. And if you get close to the sun, you're gone. The glory of God in his face is too good to behold and it would melt us. It would destroy us. But there's this ache for us that we want to see him. We want to know him face to face. So Paul is saying here, our telos... Our end, our great, all-satisfying goal is to look into the face of a hundred-proof love and live. He says, that's where you're headed. So leave behind these childish pursuits. Leave behind this desire for wealth and power and fame. Leave it behind because the glory of the face of God is where you're headed. And it's going to satisfy every hunger that your heart has. And he says, that's where we're headed. So grow up in it. Grow up into that. That's what Christ likeness looks like. That's what maturity looks like. That's what our, that's our telos. That's our goal. But throughout scripture, we see people choose to center their life on something else. We see people choose to live and work for a different telos. If you know the story, there's this guy named Saul. Saul was handsome. Saul was large. Saul had biceps, right? Saul looked good. He was very talented. And the people wanted a king. And the people put Saul up as the king. And Saul sought talent and fame and wealth. And then he heard, you know, this God takes his anointing from Saul and he chooses this little shepherd boy, little young kid, tending the flocks. And God takes his anointing from the man who sought talent, power, and wealth and he puts it upon this young man who seeks the heart of God, who seeks love. This little man grows up, does some pretty great things. Saul hears this, Saul's killed thousands, but David is ten thousands. 
This jealousy gets in his heart. This bitterness gets in his heart. This desire for wealth and fame overrides the, the glory of God and his life goes really bad. And then you see this little shepherd boy and he does not, his life doesn't, it's not all smooth sailing. David wasn't on the upward trajectory his whole life. He had some huge mistakes, murder and adultery in there. But his heart, scripture says he's a man after God's own heart. When he made his mistakes, he came back. He repented. He sought faith and repentance and the grace of God. And he sought and he sought to center his life on this love of God. And also, listen to what David says in, in Psalm 17. David got it. David's got some really, listen, men, if you like manly like men, right? David's that guy. But then if you, David's not just that guy. You read some of his writings, he makes you squirm a little bit. Okay, David makes me squirm a little bit when he when he starts talking about God in these certain terms. He starts saying, "In the watches of the night, my soul longs for you. I meditate on you like the deer pants for the water. So my soul pants for you." Now that's just that's a little intimate for me, right? It's a little intimate for me. It, it, it pushes on my you know maybe my cultural masculinity a little bit. So listen to what David says here about God. He says this, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake and see your likeness. See, David wanted to be satisfied. That's not bad. Listen, your desire to be satisfied, your desire to be loved, your desire to be known. That's not bad. That was put there by God. But like David, we need to know and we need to see, and like the Apostle Paul here, that that satisfaction is not found on the other side of wealth, fame, and honor. That's the way of Saul. But that satisfaction is absolutely found on the other side of seeing the face of God. I started thinking about this. What will... What will it be like? What will we, we think of our amassed wealth and our acquired power and our talent? What will we think of that when we stand before God face to face? You're not going to be known for your guitar solos in heaven. You're not. You're not going to be known for your PhD. You're not going to be known for your talent. You're not going to be known for your wealth. Oh, it's the mansion up on the corner. Uh, which one? We all have them. Right? You're not going to be known for your manicured lawn. But Paul says something absolutely different about love. Paul says love is different. Love lasts. Love never ends. Love goes on into eternity. We will discover, listen, this is, this is meaningful, I guess. It, maybe it's just meaningful to me, but you hear it. We will discover that all our efforts, all of our work, all of our growth in love, though imperfect, was making us fit for heaven. It was preparing us, as it were, for our wedding day. Nothing done in love is ever lost. Jesus said you can't give a cold water, a cup of cold water to someone 
without getting a, a benefit, a blessing from it. That everything is noticed. Everything done in love goes on and echoes into eternity. Loving your wife when it's hard. Loving your kids through their selfishness. Loving your neighbors when they're mean. Loving sinners when they sin against you. All of this is practice for that day. When we actualize, when we get caught up in this love of the Trinity, when we see God face to face and everything will make sense to us. And as Lewis says, even our pains in this life, even the mistreatment in this life will somehow work backwards to make heaven sweeter. See, what we experience now, even the love, the partial love we experience now, Paul says it's partial preparing us for the fullness some people get weird out about uh, the afterlife and they, they, you know, they even think about, I don't think, I don't want to go to heaven. It doesn't sound very fun. Well, let's just say, uh, well, not only <laughs> the opposite sounds a whole lot less fun, but uh, let's just stick with this for a second. Most of the time we have cultural ideas of what heaven is like, okay? We have floating on a cloud. Fat baby harp, uh, angels playing harps, right? We've got, that's really sounds, really does sound boring to me. Uh, I could take about an hour of that and then I want to do something. But all of creation's getting renewed. That's what's really happening. And this is the easiest way to, to, to talk about it. And I heard uh, Jack Miller say it like this one time uh, when he was having bedside chats with people as they're on their deathbed. He would say, think of the moment in your life where you felt the most love. Think of the moment in your life where love was, you, you almost felt caught up in it. You almost felt complete in it. You almost felt like it was pulling you along and, and, and you, were, you were out of control, right? That's a sliver. That's a taste. That's walking into the kitchen and you smell mama's baked beans for me, right? That's, oh, good, something good's coming. Something good's coming. That's what that was. That was, some, that was an experience pointing you to the reality That was a hint pointing to consummation. That's coming for us. That's where Christians are heading. It's the imperfect right now, our attempts at loving one another, it's imperfect preparing us for perfection. And Paul's saying something, it's not just like this ethereal feeling. It's not just out there floating around. That's found in the face of God. And there's something about our faces. This is so, I I just thank God for this moment. I felt so, I was finished writing the sermon last night and I'm down in the basement, surrounded by all my tools and spiders. And I'm down there typing away. And out of nowhere, I'm literally on this section and I'm thinking, how do I illustrate this? How do I say this? How do I say this right? And all of a sudden I heard, and first off, I get creeped out down there. I'm in the zone, right? There's nobody else coming down there. And I'm in the zone going. And it, sometimes my mother-in-law will walk by and she'll go, sorry, Justin. I'm like, <laughs> like, I'm just out of it, right? Because I'm in the basement. And all of a sudden I hear this. And I'm sitting on my stool and I look down and it's Piper. And she's just going. And she's getting ready to go to bed and she wants a kiss. And dad looks down and I'm like, oh, baby. Number one, yes, like give me some sugar. I love it, right? But her face, right? There's something about that face. And this is what's so sad to me. This is what chokes me up. It's to think these moments aren't gonna last very long. And I can't freeze that. I, I wanna look at her and I want it to freeze in my mind. I wanna never forget it. 
There's something about her face right now. Well, it's going to be forever, right? But there's something about, and that's similar to what it's going to be look, going to be to look up and to look into the face of Jesus Christ. That we're going to get it finally in that moment. The face is going to be the reality of everything we've been hoping and longing for. In His face, we're going to see it. Paul says, <laughs> "Face love is the greatest." You never heard that term? That's because I just made it up. That's the end that Christians are headed. That's where we're going. That's what Jesus will do when he shows up. We get to see him face to face. He's going to renew the whole planet. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, if we could put that scripture up here. So Paul's next book that he writes, or his next letter that he writes to the Corinthians, I feel like he's just going to explain what he's, the principles he's teaching here, he's going to explain them a little clearer. And look what he says in 3.18. And we all, Look, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are, look, being, that's right now. That's not future. That's right now. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul is saying, we become like that which we behold. As we behold the glory of God, we're being made into the image of God. As we behold the love of God, we're being made into the love of God. Look at the next scripture, 2 Corinthians 4. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, look, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the end. That's where we're going. Parents, that's why we spend more time getting our kids to see the glory in the face than be able to watch the ball. Keep your eyes on Christ more than your eyes on the ball. How acquainted, right now, how acquainted are you getting with the face of Jesus? How often do you sit down and just think about it or open up his word and read about it and study it? Parents, you can't teach your kids what you ain't got. How acquainted are you? Listen, it's a sign of immaturity. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. Don't hear, don't hear what I'm not saying. It's a sign of immaturity to be more um, excited about talent, power, and wealth than we are about love. It's a sign of immaturity. Let's grow up. As I close, in the hymn, 18th century hymn, My Savior, first of all, Fanny Crosby wrote, When my life work is ended and I cross the swelling tide, when the bright and glorious morning I shall see, I shall know my Redeemer when I reach the other side, and His smile will be the first to welcome me. Through the gates of the city in a robe of spotless white, He will lead me where no tears will ever, will ever fall. In the glad song of ages, I shall mingle with delight, but I long to meet my Savior first of all. Now listen, those words have special significance for Fanny Crosby because... Fanny Crosby was blind. She knew the first person she would ever see 
would be Jesus Christ. In a way, the same thing is true of all of us. Our sight here on earth is virtually like blindness compared to the clear vision we will have in heaven. The partial will fade. The perfect comes. The blind, dim light, seeing the love of God, seeing Jesus Christ. It's a fight here on earth. There's so many competing visions. There's so many things I want to block out. The glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It's battle. It's war. We have to fight. To, to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ, but not in heaven. All competing visions will die and will be caught up in the love of the Trinity for eternity. Let me, let me pray. Father, this is the world. This is the end for which you've created the world. This is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And some, it's so hard in our pragmatic world, we just want tips and tricks to be better. We want a stress-free life. We want some, a few steps to get our kids to obey. We want easy ways to manage our money. We want to just stop fighting with our spouse, stop arguing with our kids. And those things aren't bad in themselves, but the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is so much more compelling vision. I pray that we would be caught up with it that it wouldn't be just some kind of theoretical idea. It wouldn't be philosophy. It wouldn't be some out there esoteric idea, Father, but it would be something real, something concrete, that the light of Jesus Christ has shown in our heart, that the veil has been removed, that I get to glimpse the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And it's my all-encompassing vision and goal and telos for my life. I pray that all of us, would experience that this morning. And as we come, and there's no way in, we don't earn that. That's a gift of grace of people are here today for the first time and they're not Christians and they've never accepted Christ, that it's not anything they have to do. It's something they have to believe that Jesus Christ, the son of God came to this earth to live the life that we all fail to live. And then he died as a substitutionary death on our account. As we read in the profession of faith that him, who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange, our sin for his righteousness. We thank you for that, Jesus. I pray that people in this room today would put their faith in that so that they can look forward to seeing your face. Father, us believers, as we come to the Lord's table, let us turn from our sin. Let us take a moment to repent of our f foolish endeavors, of our placing fame and talent and power and wealth at the center of our being, at the center of our world, at raising our kids to love talent and love wealth and love power more than the face of God. Let us repent of that. Let's repent of that with joy, knowing that all of our sins have been forgiven and that we've been washed clean in the blood of Jesus Christ. And we stand before the throne of God, righteous. And that's the only reason we will ever be able to see the face and live is because we stand not in our own righteousness, but in the perfect, spotless, alien righteousness of Jesus Christ. Father, we look forward to that day when all the blind will see. Let us eat the bread. Let us drink the cup, thinking about that day. 
And as we behold that day, and as we think of that day, you are in the process of making us mature, making us more loving, making us more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. As we behold, we are becoming new, and we thank you for that. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen.